mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. And we're here to tell their stories. Here's your host, Andrew Lawrence. Not all of us look the way the world expects us to look, think as the world expects us to think, or arrive at our destination the way the world expects us to. On the Square Peg Podcast, we give a voice to mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. I'm your host, Andrew Lawrence, and here are their stories. Thank you to the Searchlight Needles for getting us started as always. The hashtag needles aren't just a quartet of middle-aged, overweight, and balding El Pasos. Robert Martinez, Josh Smith, Adrian Ortiz, and David Sines are four really fantastic guys who hold down jobs and take care of families during the week, and they rock out on the weekends. You can find them on the web at www.searchlightneedles.com. You can find them on Facebook, and you can download their album on all streaming services. And now a word from our sponsor. Have you experienced pain in your lower extremities, even your hips or lower back after standing or walking? Your feet may not fit in your shoes or on the ground properly. Soul Man Foot Insoles, with 30 years' experience making people's feet feel more comfortable, can help. Henry Soulman Veloz is the official insole provider for UTEP Athletics and has made custom insoles for my athletic, casual, dress shoes, and work boots for 15 years now. You can find him on Facebook at Soulman Custom Foot Insoles or you can call him at 915-241-2153. That is S-O-L-E-M-A-N Custom Foot Insoles on Facebook and call him 915-241-2153. My guest today is a native Indiana Hoosier. He's a father, a husband, a pastor, a brewer of fine home beers, and uh, he's actually a pretty good friend of mine. Jared Carson, welcome to the Square Peg Podcast. Thanks. Uh, that's quite an introduction. Well, wh- what part about that was the got you kind of chuckly? Uh, you know, I, I just, when you put all the pieces together, um, it's quite a, a collection. That, uh, sometimes you don't stop to think about your own stories and how all those stories overlap. Maybe I forgot, and, and I, maybe we can get into this, but I don't know how a guy from Indiana becomes a fan of a Bay Area football teams. But Well, that's the only part of my story that, that you don't quite have all the details of. I grew up in Indiana, but I'm a native Californian from the Bay Area. So you were born, so you were born in the Bay Area? I was born in the San Francisco Bay Area and been a lifelong 49ers and Giants fan. Okay, so is that how your mom ended up back out there? So my mom took a job when I was in elementary school to the Midwest. We're in Michigan for a couple of years and then settled in Indianapolis. And uh, and that's pretty much where I grew up when people ask. And I think after all these years, I still have to, I think I'm finally at the point where I don't automatically assume you're a Colts fan. Yeah, um, you know, I'll keep track of the Colts, but I'm not a Colts fan. Which, so what era of, of San Francisco 49ers football do you most associate with you becoming a fan or coming oh, well, of age Joe as a fan? Joe Montana was the quarterback when I was growing up. And, and so Joe Montana, Steve Young, the glory years, I would say. And and there have been some waning years uh, of the 49ers that, that are just lamentful, but, um, you know, always a fan. I'm a little bit surprised that you mentioned Joe Montana because I know you're a few years younger than them. You're pushing 40, right? Uh, I'm 41. Okay, so you – all right, so, yeah, I mean, I guess you did – I'm trying to think. Maybe Montana left in 88, 89. So you did have time. I just I know that that's what I I associate as my childhood. I associate Montana as the 49ers quarterback, knowing that I'm a few few years older than you. I was a little bit surprised. I would have I would have expected the Steve Young. But um in any case you you did your your formative years growing up in in uh, Indianapolis and ended up going to uh Bloomington. Yep. 
for college. Was there any other choice or was there anything else on the radar? Uh, I thought about other things, never applied uh, yeah. anywhere. And, you know, for better or worse, um, I was kind of going with my crowd. Um, there were so many people from my high school who also applied to IU Bloomington. And so I did and I got accepted. And um, I, I wouldn't say I was an exceptional student. So uh, to get into any university, I was I was pleased with. <laughs> did you actually apply anywhere else? No. And so yeah, not even any any uh, for lack of a term uh, parochial or or christian based christian schools no no i thought about it got a lot of flyers and materials but um you know larry growing up i wasn't a very good writer um and so i didn't ever feel comfortable with all the the essays and everything that were required and so i got into iu bloomington and i was really happy with that you know, it's funny that you mentioned that. I I don't know that I've rest. I don't necessarily know that I've read anything that you've written. I would imagine you're a decent writer now because having, you know, been through college and been through seminary, and and I know you you do quite a bit of writing. But um, that's that was kind of like me. I didn't. I couldn't barely write when I graduated high school, and it was the combination of majoring in history and having to do a lot of writing there, uh, and also having a father who not only corrected our grammar every night at the dinner table, my sister's going to attest to that, but um, that's the origins. Those are the origins of my grammar Nazism. Um, but I, I had the best editor in the world. Uh, and I, you know, I lived at home and I commuted to school when I went to college. So I really developed my writing skills there. And now I, if I say so myself, I'm a pretty damn good writer. Um, you know, uh, but did you have any idea? Tell, tell me a little bit about, I guess people always assume that because you, uh, have chosen, or as the story may be, in a lot of times, that your 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 uh, profession chose you or called you. Um, faith, your faith has always been a big part of your life, though. Yeah, you know, as far back as I can remember, my family always attended uh, worship, and we were always part of the Lutheran church uh, wherever we lived. Uh, my grandparent, we would go to the same church as a uh, as a young child uh, that my grandparents had attended my mom grew up in that congregation um so it was always kind of like an undercurrent of our family life um and everything revolved around um going to church i was active in children's choir sunday school youth groups going on trips um i remember my first trip internationally to estonia um, in 1996, not too long after the, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of communism and learning that there were uh, Christians uh, that were in these former Soviet countries. And um, so those were some very eye-opening kinds of experiences for me. Was that a mission trip? Yeah, well, sort of. It, I would call it a cross-cultural experience, a cultural exchange, um, where we went and we lived with host families for about 15 days, and uh, we just learned about what it's like in those countries. We did some projects while we were there, but I, we, did, we weren't building houses or yeah. anything like that. And so it was more, for me, the takeaway was what I received from my host families, the hospitality, the graciousness, um, and, and the level of care for a stranger just kind of showed up at their door. You just kind of piqued my interest in something I guess I've thought about before, but never really articulated it, never specifically articulated it in my own head. You know, uh, I studied history in college, and uh, 
while we weren't necessarily required to have an area of specialty or concentration, I did, if there was an area that I concentrated more on, especially in the upper of my upper division courses, it was on revolutionary Russia. And it's, it's kind of always been in the back of my mind to wonder how the Russian Orthodox church not only survived, but kind of coexisted with uh, the Soviet union. Uh, and again, that was something that, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, somebody I can get in here to explain it to me one day, but um, so you, when you went to off to school at IU, did you know that you were going to, had you felt the calling yet? No. You know, when I went to high school and college, well, in high school, I was part of the high school radio station. And so I thought I was going to have a career in sales and advertising for radio or television. That's where I was focusing when I went to IU. Um, I got a a degree in uh, telecommunications with a minor in business marketing. And, you know, I've had dreams of, uh, of making lots of money and, and living, living the life. I even had an internship at a hip hop and R and B radio station in Indianapolis, uh, doing live remotes with, uh, setting up live remotes for the DJs and, um, you know, great memories. Uh, but ultimately, uh, there was an experience I knew as a young, young child or as a high schooler, I wanted to work my summers at a Christian summer camp because summer camp had been so formative for me. Well, over the course of my life, that led to seven summers working at camps. And through those years, I would say I was drawn, called um, to the, the career of being a public minister in, in the Lutheran Church. Now, when you, I know when you were at Indiana, you and I talked about uh, you were a DJ. You DJed parties and frat parties and things like that, and so and, you got to make money somehow, right? <laughs> well, and to a to a certain extent, I know that you know you've, uh, without delving too much into your personal life, I know you you have stuck to your so a lot of your core beliefs about morality and things like that. But you you drank and probably to excess and and um, went to parties and played DJ at parties. So you, I mean, you had it, what sounds to me like a fairly typical university experience. What was your faith life like? Uh, did, did were you part of a Lutheran campus group or? Uh, so yeah, there was a Lutheran group at Indiana uh, University, and I was active in that group. Um, I would say that that you know the the alcohol, the drinking in college was um, not all that unusual for me. Um, it wasn't something. It wasn't a rebellious kind of thing. Um, I grew up in a house that was very open. Um, with alcohol, um, I remember getting my first taste of wine at the dinner table at age 12 or 13. Um, and, you know, my parents never never let me have a whole beverage to myself. Uh, but it also, I had models of what moderate uh, alcohol consumption looked like. So when I got to IU, um, while I knew people who were going crazy, um, yeah, there were times that we would party and it was fun um but i also remembered that there were limits um, safe safe limits to to all of that and so the the lutheran student group was a great place for me although there were times after a saturday night party where i'd wake up and go do i really want to go to church this morning do i really need to be here 
and and ultimately I dragged my ass out of bed and and there I was in the pew. On, was on, that was that after thinking about maybe some of the excesses of the previous night? Of course, and think I, I definitely need to go. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. My friends would tease me about that uh, because they would always I, I affectionately refer to this as the Church of Saint Mattress. They would stay at the <laughs> Church of Saint Mattress uh, while I was off going to to worship. Well, we're going to get to some stuff here in a little while. The Church of St. Matches became a thing here in the past year. Um, so what, did, was there any kind of gap between graduating from IU and, and going to seminary? To, what, what was that time oh, of your yeah. life like? So after graduating, I, uh, I met a girl, and I chased her around the country. First, uh, we spent the summer together in New York working at one of the Lutheran camps, and then uh, she went back to college in Iowa. So I uh, found a a job at one of our Lutheran camps in Iowa, and I was on their year-long staff, and I was working at a, a Methodist church as their youth director. And finally, during that time, we got engaged and were uh, married, and I sold used cars uh, for a year. I was It was when you start telling the story, I'm like, I, I know Jared's told me before how you met Laura, and I was going to say, was this Laura? Was this somebody else you yeah, chased no, around? This is this is Laura. And, now the the working at a, at a Methodist church was yeah. that weird for you? Uh, well, it was a it was a partnership between the Lutheran camp that I was working at because okay. they could only pay for half time, and the Methodist church wanted a youth director, and so they they said they would tolerate a, a Lutheran upstart. Uh, right, and uh, so they paid half time, and so cobble them together. I was able to make to earn a, a wage. Now, of course, at this, ring. <laughs> so, I mean, at, at, at this point, I mean, I know, of course, uh, the listeners don't know. We're going to introduce this just now. Laura is actually a deacon in your church, and she's your wife. Was she when you the were the only ch- time it's acceptable to sleep with your coworker? Uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, Jared Carson, <laughs> pastor of Peace Lutheran Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico, um, sleeping with your coworker. Um, no, <laughs> was she involved in ministry or, or anything like that at the time? I would say that Laura sensed the call to ministry before I had met her. She was uh, at a Lutheran college in Iowa studying uh, some some pre-sem kinds of coursework. And so uh, when we met and we both had said, you know, hey, I think this relationship's going somewhere, but I need you to know that I think we're going to be going to, or I'm going to be going to seminary. You said that to her. Uh, well, we we had that mutual conversation, and we both decided that, yeah, seminary was in our future together, and so we were able to get married before going to graduate school. So now, we moved from Iowa to South Carolina. Is that where you went to seminary, or, or I thought it was California? No, you went to seminary in seminary South Carolina. In South Carolina. You were in yeah. in Southern California. Became before you came here. Right. Yeah, that was our internship, and then our first uh, ministry site was in L.A. So you and Laura went to seminary together? Yep. Same school? Yep. Same program or no? Different program. So um, in the Lutheran tradition, um, my wife is a rostered deacon, which means that she feels the call to proclaim the word. So word and service is what we say. And since I'm a pastor, that's the title for uh, those people who are called to the ministry of word and sacrament. So uh, Holy Communion, Baptism. Teaching of the faith in word and preaching. So you you end up in 2014 here in Las Cruces. Yep. Bringing us to the next segment on of things I want to talk about with you. I'll I'll kind of introduce it um in, a, in in this way. So the first time you and I met was at Todd's house 
a mutual friend of ours. He's a parishioner at your, is that what you call a per, somebody at your, yeah. a parishioner, member. A, mem- a member of your church. And it was, I think it was the twins or maybe Penny's birthday or something like that. And, um, and I guess he had told me, yeah, my pastor brews beer. Um, and I just, I had never, you know, being growing up in the United States in a Jewish family, obviously a overwhelmingly Christian nation, uh, during mostly during the eighties, during a, a Ronald Reagan presidency where the religious right and the moral majority, uh, kind of really was introduced to, to, to the majority in the country or, you know, majority people in, in the United States. My thoughts and my, my view of Protestant Christians in the United States was kind of shaped by that. And this assumption that, you know, if you're a Protestant, you're a teetotaler and, and, and all this, it was a, a little bit of a surprise, a pleasant surprise, if you will, to hear that there's this man of the Christian cloth, uh, who brews beer at his house. Of course, I, you know, I studied a lot of European history and I know that monks and, and a lot of people in the Catholic Church associated with brewing and, and, uh, enjoying beer. But to know somebody uh, was a bit of a surprise. And I met you and, uh, and of course that's something that, um, maybe you can touch on for me the differences in the interpretation of what's allowable and what's not allowable as far as drinking alcohol between what I would, I would associate. I know the Catholic church is certainly no, no prohibitions on alcohol. And my understanding of the Lutheran church is it is kind of in that, on that side of Christianity with the Episcopal church and as opposed to Protestants, how is it that it's okay uh, in your view or your interpretation of the Bible for Christians to drink alcohol and maybe somebody of a, of a Liberty university so one one uh, quick note in Scripture is that Jesus um, never condemns drinking and, in fact, celebrates the Eucharist, well, celebrates the Last Supper with his disciples, sharing wine. Um, now, there are prohibitions against excess in Scripture, but um, partaking in, in drinking beer, wine, other spirits um, is is totally, and as I understand it, read uh, reading scripture, uh, permissible. So um, also the founder of the Lutheran tradition, who was a Roman Catholic monk um, and left, the, the, well, was kicked out of the Roman Catholic tradition, and his wife brewed the beer in the house, and he was a great consumer of, of beer um, and loved good beer. And so being a Lutheran, all my life, drinking uh, beer, uh, alcohol was never an issue for me, or never in question. I guess the whether whether we sh- we could or not. Um, I think the question always is: Have I had too much in in any given moment? And and I think if you don't have to be a Christian to wrestle with that question. Yeah. Um, what would the others? What would the argument be for not drinking? Uh well, some people would try to point to a text that says our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and that we, uh, we don't want to pollute our body. Uh, this is a quote from St. Paul, um, the, the church of Corinth. Um, you know, my only trouble with people using that text is that I think it's a misrepresentation of what Paul's trying to say because Paul's specifically talking about prostitutes and, um, that joining your physical body to a prostitute is a pollution of the gift that God's given you. Um, I'm not sure that we can say that 
for, for any certainty that Paul would carry that same con- uh, connotation into uh, smoking, drinking, um, you know, the, that, that seemed to be a very specific thing that St. Paul was talking about. Um, now, people do, and, and they're free to. I mean, that's why, pe- that's why we have interpretations, right? Um, it's just from my point of view, that's not what that text is. I would not to delve in too deeply into scripture, but because you're talking about stuff I don't know anything about. But I find it interesting that St. Paul is talking about um, individual A not polluting his body with what the prostitute has to offer. Is there any mention from Paul about the prostitute herself or himself? Um, and where where they are in their <laughs> yeah, not not specifically that I, that comes to mind. Um, but, but I would, you know, just say that St. Paul was, was a good Jew. Um, you know, he was trying to walk this line of being himself uh, Jewish from birth, but also um, recognizing that the, the gift of God's own self um, was for all people, not, not just for uh, the people of Israel. Well, um Taking this a step further, uh, with regard to kind of your, the differences and how, you know, people within the spectrum of Christianity, the United States see morality and what's allowed and what's not. Um, you know, we talked before a little few minutes before we went on air about, um, that saying that you and I have both heard that, you know, never trust a politician who tells you how to pray, never test a, never trust a, uh, uh, a religious leader who tells you how to vote. You know, as long as I've known you, I look, I know what your opinions are and I know how you vote. Um, but you're also very protective of that and you pretty much do honor that saying that I just recited. Uh, and you're, care- you're very careful to kind of tread lightly, um, on those things. Can you just talk a little bit about what you see the difference is between who are the probably the most visible and the loudest Protestants in the United States? And their seemingly militant um, condemnation of everything that they don't like, with your more open and more progressive, uh, it, it, just chat me up about that and how you arrive at that, and and why why your particular you know sect of Christianity where that fits, and even within that sect, I know that there are some differences. Yeah, I guess I would just start by saying that Christianity isn't uh, a monolith; it's not uniform um, in in all of its expressions of, of teaching and life uh, expectations. Um, so I, I would say that those traditions that have come out of the fundamentalist movement of the early 1900s um, tend to be, you know, more politically, more socially uh, conservative on things like inclusion of gay and lesbians. Um, transgendered persons, um, having conversations on the reality of uh, white privilege, um, addressing uh, racism publicly uh, in the United States. Um, There are some uh, in the evangelical kind of realms. If you go to um, the Sojourners community, um, you can look them up online. Um, they're evangelicals um, who are also, you know, very progressive um, on a, on a lot of issues. Um, 
a, a group that uh, that I really uh, appreciate following um, is uh, Reverend Barber, um, the Moral Mondays uh, movement um, that not only calls us to uh, calls all Christians, um, whether you agree with them or not, to a deep faith, um, but also recognizing that that faith is lived out in daily life and how we treat our, our neighbor. And, and I know that most Christians would agree with those statements on the surface, but then how do you live that out is the, the real question that is the nuts and bolts, right? Um, and so, you know, that, that invites us into... Um, political action, as it were. Um, we, we Christians are a part of the, the national, we're part of the, the people that live in the communities that have elected representation. And so those views that are important to us, um, we advocate for. We, you know, some people might, might not appreciate that so much, but the reality is we all do that. We all, whether we're part of a community of faith or not, we have feelings and opinions, and we want those expressed um, through our our political um, engines and the representatives. And so uh, one way or one place of gathering to do that is in the church. And so my, my congregation is radically open. Radically open. That's not a term that yeah. I've... I've heard very often. Now, I know that your church is very inclusive. Um, you actually have, and I can't, I'm trying to remember what it exactly says. You have a sticker or a sign near your front door that says, uh, all are welcome or something like that. And you've got the rainbow, the pride. But what is it? What yeah. does it say? Uh, well, it, it's, uh, it's from the P flag uh, organization here in Las Cruces that says that we're a safe place. Okay. Um, for people who identify as gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender. And you, in no way, shape, or form, can find anything in the Bible that says that that needs to be condemned or uh, shunned or... Well, again, you know, Scripture is a product of history, right? And so in history, you know, just like American history, uh, we had founding fathers who were slaveholders. Well, I don't think slaveholding is, is at all appropriate, uh, but it doesn't... It doesn't deny the fact that they wrote about and they, they lived a life that had those marks. So scripture also is a product of history, and that there were things that identified the Jewish community, um, like the Levitical laws in, in the book of Leviticus, that uh, were for the Jewish community. And while that is part of scripture, all, we, uh, we don't adhere to everything I, I don't have to uh, stone my donkey um, because it, it fell down a well. Uh, you know, that's another piece of uh, what's in Leviticus. So You could go down a lot of rabbit yeah, holes. Yeah, you could go down um, a lot of rabbit holes. But the, the reality is that we recognize that there are aspects of what's trying to call people to a life of faithfulness to God in a particular time and place, which may not necessarily apply to us in our modern and I've, I think I've told you this story. You know, the, the, the synagogue, the, the, my, my dad's still a member of, my parents have been members of since, you know, we moved to the Washington DC area in 1975, where I grew up. Uh, the senior rabbi there now, uh, who, uh, I don't know particularly well because she kind of came around, uh, when I was in high school and I wasn't involved too much there. Of course, I, you know, moved away. 
fantastic woman. Um, very dynamic. Uh, from what I've read, things that she's written uh, has has a wonderful grasp of things and a wonderful way of expressing her interpretations of things. When my wife and I were getting married, you know, I grew up in a Jewish tradition. My wife, very you know, in in Canada, but a product of Irish Catholic, you know, Catholics from Belfast. Went to Catholic school her whole life, uh, trying to figure out who was going to officiate our wedding. And the one thing that was out was going to be, you know, Rabbi Schwartzman. And, and at the time, my mother was explaining that she would, and this is 20 years ago, she would marry a same-sex Jewish couple. And this, of course, before the Supreme Court and before uh, anything became legalized. But as far as in, in her own synagogue, would marry a same-sex Jewish couple, but would not marry an interfaith couple. And as somebody who doesn't have the, a great understanding of the Bible or, or, or very serious, at, at no point in my life, especially now, I've had any kind of serious feelings of deep faith, I found that to be a very interesting dividing line. Not right or wrong. I don't agree or disagree, but at the time, I found it to be a very interesting place to draw that line. Um, you obviously have a different... Have you performed uh, a same-sex yes. a marriage ceremony? Yeah. And is there any... Well, what is the the if you will, the the Lutheran view. Is there a Lutheran view? Are you departing from what mainline Lutheranism is? Or, um, I would say that when it comes to Christianity broadly, mainline Christians uh, diverge or are have a different perspective than conservative uh, evangelical Christians. Um, where I would say most of the mainline Protestant traditions now permit, authorize ministers uh, to to marry same-sex couples. Um, and the service, rightly, isn't all that different. I mean, the thing that's most important uh, in the service is that two people are joining themselves to each other before God and, and the assembly, the, the gathering of the people. Um and there's promises that are made, and the, you know, the minister, God, the the uh, the assembly are all there to bear witness. I mean, not kind of unlike a courtroom, you know, where where you have witnesses that that can, as a community, not necessarily as people of faith, but as as a community, hold people accountable to the covenants, the the promises that they're making to one another, the vows that they're that they're making, and. So, while there's, I would, I would describe unseen forces of, of God at work, whether we recognize it or not, in a, in a marriage service, um, you know, for same-sex couples or for heterosexual couples, the service is, is the same. Um, there's not anything that we need to change about it. Do, do you make this pledge to uh, be faithful? Well, and one thing I've, I imagine you've not had the opportunity to do in the past year is perform actually any actual weddings. Um, you know, it, there's been a pretty common theme. You know, this podcast didn't start until mid, a little bit out, halfway past uh, the, the middle of. And now here's a message from one of the sponsors who make this program possible. That's right. We have sponsors now. Lorenzo's Italian Restaurant has been a part of the Las Cruces community for over 25 years, supporting schools, shelters, and veterans. Even during COVID times, Lorenzo's is offering patio tent dining, delivery, curbside pickup, chow now online, and mobile app ordering. Now offering customers any signature or two-topping pizza for only $15. 
There's only one Lorenzo's in town, and it's at 1753 East University in Pan Am Plaza. You can call 575-521-3505. And ladies and gentlemen, just a little bit of ad lib here. If you've never had a Lorenzo's meatball, you've never had a Lorenzo's meatball. By the way, dip their bread in some of the oil with a little bit of salt, a little bit of Parmesan. You will not be disappointed, I guarantee you. 2020, in when the pandemic was in full swing, and it's become kind of normal for me to at some point ask, you know, each of my guests, well, how has COVID affected you? And, um, you know, that's one of the things that, what actually one of the main things that, that got me interested in inviting you to come on the show, uh, you know, speaking about the pandemic, also it's a, I, I want to say it's probably only the second or third time we've seen each other in the last year, which is quite odd because, you know, we, we are good friends and I, with our kids playing the same soccer team and part of the same kind of loose uh, grouping of, of, of friends of, of adults and families. Uh, yeah, we, there was no Super Bowl party this year. There was no Super Bowl fry party. There was no, I, I think I've, I've had, I was been over to your house for a freshly brewed beer, uh, once in the past year. Yeah. But, um, hey, if I got to invite you on my radio show to get to hang out with one of my buddies, <laughs> um, but no, talk us, and I, you really, you blew my mind when you told me that you actually record your Sunday worship and your sermon like yeah. on a Tuesday. You blew my mind. You, you actually kind of like, I don't know. It was, it disappointed me so much. <laughs> I don't know why. I'm not a believer. I yeah. don't, you know, um, well, it, I would say that the pandemic start, you know, for in earnest started in March. Um, our last in building in person worship was March 15th of 2020. And we had about half of our members there that Sunday. Is that normal? Is that a big number or a? Oh, that's a low number for okay. us. Okay. And we were streaming on Zoom um, simultaneously. That was our first attempt at, hey, we know that there's this threat of pandemic. If you feel safer staying at home, you know, please do so. Uh, but we're still going to have public worship. And then, then we went into the, the governor's order for you know, mandatory quarantine um and boy i can say that i had decision fatigue for about (laughs) three months yeah where every day was another consultation with my council leadership about okay what does this mean what are we going to do you know two weeks from now and then two weeks coming back and saying well okay that didn't pan out because here we are in this new reality and so it's always going back to the drawing board for the first, probably till June, it felt like that. Just exhausting. Well, those early days of the pandemic, I remember really not knowing and, and, and bringing me to my next, kind of my next question. I know you and you and I have talked about it. You've posted on, I, I think I've obviously friends with you on Facebook, but I think I follow Peace Lutheran Church as well. You guys have drive through communion. Yeah. So it's not drive through, it's drive in. So like think about going to a drive in movie where you back your car in, okay. face the side of the building. We have a raised uh, concrete area where we set up a table and, and lead worship from there. Um, and so we get about uh, 25 to 30 cars. And there's usually at least two, maybe uh, two to four people per car if it's a family. So uh, we're getting decent attendance in this time of pandemic. We also are doing still a lot of stuff and pre-recorded um so yeah we we do daily prayer videos at noon every day that publish on the facebook page and on youtube for our, our congregation and um 
And then um, all of our services and all of our fellowship activities. Uh, you know, the most important thing for us is that we want to keep everyone as safe as possible. We can't control what families are doing outside of you know, church-sponsored activities. But for church-sponsored activities, we can keep everyone as safe as possible. And, um, and so that's meant being not, not together face to face now you're when you with for your drive-in communion are you walking up to each car and people like raising their hands if they're taking communion that week or no so when they drive in there's a station that uh hands them uh, a bowl that way we continue to practice good social distancing um that has communion elements in it they're pre-packaged so there's a wafer and there's okay. a grape juice and it's all hermetically sealed so i know todd stuvey would approve because he's in the <laughs> medical field and um, and so there's also a worship bulletin that gets passed into the vehicle and then people park and, and they turn on their radio to, uh, to an FM station that we designate and, uh, they participate from their car and they can look at the car next to them and, and see the, the people that they wish they were with in the pews. And that's something that, uh, when did you start doing that? And see, that's fairly, I want to say, given the timeline, fairly late in the pandemic, there was a time, March, April, May, we didn't know if that even that was safe. Right. I mean, even being in a car next to somebody and, you know, I asked you, do you go car to car and, and deliver it that way? That probably also would be knowing what we know now, um, according to the experts would be fairly safe. If you have your mask on and you're literally walking up to a car and handing somebody something, even if you're handing the individual hermetically sealed kits, um, you're outdoors. You're, if you're within six feet of somebody, you're, it's literally momentarily. Um, you're outdoors, you're not around somebody, even that is safe. But there was a time, I mean, thinking back, it seems like literally a lifetime ago, March, April, May of 2020, we didn't know those things. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Larry, I was just having a conversation with my, my sons and they have forgotten what it's like to be in school (laughs) without a mask or to be around people in school without a mask. So they were asking, we go back to school did, did, did we have to wear masks? Did we ever? Did we ever not wear masks when we were outside? You know those kinds of questions. And they're nine and seven, um, and so I've already thought about how this is going to be a significant year and a half, at least, of their lives, their formative years, that they'll remember for this pandemic. So I hope that future generations will learn something from all of it. Well, I don't know that it's necessarily applicable or there's a parallel in in your field uh but i you know i we had todd in here a couple weeks ago and his episode's going to air here very soon we talked to him and you know i know i have a lot of people in my family a lot of people my friends are in the medical field and i thought to myself they're going to have this body of knowledge and this this uh ability to impart you know knowledge on people in the next several decades about what it was like to deal with this and what they learned from it and you know dealing with things like public health and communicable diseases um, I don't know that there's a real, like I said, a real parallel in what you do, but you never know. You never know what's going to happen throughout the rest of your life where you have to minister and, and, and preach the gospel from afar. Um, at, at, at in, in any case, your kids are going to learn certain things. Our kids are going to learn certain things to take forward. You're learning, uh, different things on, on how to, uh, minister to people from afar. I mean, who, who knows? I mean, you know, you hear about, I just had the thought where people do these overseas missions. Um, and with the age of technology, we've learned maybe you don't have to necessarily be overseas 
uh, to serve people. That's absolutely true. Um, we are connecting with more people in during this pandemic um, who are out of area, I would say, uh, California, uh, Kansas, uh, Albuquerque even, um, who are finding what we're doing on social media, finding what we're doing digitally, um, and connecting with us. Um, and that's just incredible. Uh, I, I joked early on in the pandemic when we started video recording that I became a televangelist. <laughs> and we tell you, we've talked about that. <laughs> and, uh, and, it's, and to some degree, it's true, and you're right, you know. Uh, how, how much can we, um, how, how far will we be able to uh, send our message, uh, reaching people in other countries around the globe? Well, we certainly have, uh, you know, a You're, few a few uh, African princes who are following us on social media. I'm sure they are. They they want your they want into the coffers, don't they? Yeah, yeah. They keep asking for uh, financial support. You're you're a regular Benny Hinn. Um, you know, Jared, I would be I would be irresponsible for me to invite you in here and not to talk about uh, one of the one of the interests that you and I have in common. We share something that uh, is very very special to both of us, and that is your beer brewing. Um, <laughs> You know, you and I talk beer all the time, yeah. and uh, I think you know what my tastes are. I've also, you know, I've been in your garage, and when we went to the Arizona Bowl a couple of years ago, you and Todd and me, uh, we had to stop off at, to buy you some supplies somewhere. Yeah, we had to, to go to the homebrew shop. Had to go to the homebrew shop. And, you know, as much as I love tasting beer and drinking beer and geeking out about it, I my interest in the actual brewing process is almost nil. Um, but take me through, uh, I just want to drink it and geek out and get drunk and you know, um, and enjoy it. But you know, take me through, how did you get into brewing and, and what are your interests within the area of brewing? So, so you know, again, my, my childhood growing up, my dad uh, tried his hand at home brewing with a, a friend. Um, I remember them making many batches um, from a kit and it was down in our basement and I was kind of intrigued by it. But I, I have to say, I didn't drink beer till I got to college. So um, it, it was interesting, but it wasn't that interesting to me. Um, what, what really became interesting is in college, I, uh, didn't just drink beer to, to get drunk or have a good time. I worked at a liquor store in, in the evenings and I would pick up different international and craft beers. The future pastor working yeah. at the liquor store. Yeah. Mind you, go ahead. And, uh, and so I had a bottle collection of all the different beers that I had sampled, uh, during my college years, and I even built shelves around the top of my apartment in college to display them all, because uh, they were kind of like, you know, this is like pre-untapped. I don't know. Do you know do you know the app Untapped, where you can log the beers that you have? I think you got so me on like, that, yeah. This is like, you know, pre-untapped. I, so all my friends that came over would see it, and they'd go, oh, wow, you've had all those? And it's like, heck yeah, I have. And uh, so I had over 300, 300 20 different beers that I'd sampled in college. And um, so that, that kind of put me on a track for enjoying craft beer and being able to distinguish the malt flavors from the, the hop uh, flavors and the aromas and, uh, you know, what kind of yeast is imparted and the water quality. And, and so finally, uh, I, when we moved to L.A., I decided that for my son's first birthday party, not that he was going to be drinking, but I figured everybody else would appreciate having something, uh, I was going to brew 
my first batch of beer to be ready by his birthday. And it was the most god-awful <laughs> beer I'd ever brewed. It tasted like green apple. Uh, you know, knowing now I, I what that means. Is it was I just a cider. Come on. Yeah. It wasn't a beer. Think of it that way. <laughs> what I know now is I didn't let it ferment long enough. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, you know, that was already 10 years ago now. So. Wow. What do you have going right now? Uh, right now I have a Sammy Claus in my fermenter. A Sammy Claus is a Swiss style. That is a high gravity uh, Bach style beer, so it's a German style, um, and it's traditionally brewed at uh, early December around Saint Nicholas Day, and so Sammy Claus's Saint Nicholaus is the, the language derivation, and so you brew it, and then a year later you sample it, you you share it, so it ages, it lagers for that long. Uh, they need that because it's a high-gravity beer, but also uh, for the aging of, of the beer. Um, and so it's really a kind of a, a winter specialty. Well, if there's, you know, if, if there's one story I want to leave us with to give you an idea of, of one of the reasons I feel like Jared, at least he may not think himself this way, but in my mind is a bit of a square peg and, and uh, you know, fits with the mold of the show and basically existing and, and operating in such a way that's not what a lot of people may expect is a couple of years ago, I, I went down to El Paso to get a, a beer. It was a McEwen Scotch Ale. What the first, what I call the first beer I ever tasted that gave me the, the, the Nirvana moment where you taste it and like, you just have this great sense of being. And it's just this awesome, like Buddha, like you're just cool. And, um, and you couldn't get it. I don't think you can get it in the United States anymore at all, but at the time you could get it in El Paso. And so I went down to El Paso and, of course, Jared, it's a Friday afternoon at like two o'clock and Jared's holding court, um, you know, at his Messiah Valley homebrew club, uh, on, on the patio of one of the local, uh, restaurants slash breweries. And so I, I went to go say hey and he came out to car to get the beer and put it in his car, whatever. But of course, Jared's wearing his collar and like, man, that's a Jared thing to do. And, and I know we had a discussion about that. I, I said, you do that for reaction. And then of course you do it because that's who you are and you kind of want to, you feel the need to normalize, right? Yeah, I mean, why should I hide who I am? Uh, I'm a minister, and I love beer, so I can, I can do both those things at the same time. Well, Jared, here is to uh, hopefully sometime in, in the not-too-distant future, us being able to sit around and not just talk about beer, but have beers together and, and start to seriously plan that uh, beer tour of, of the Colorado breweries that I've been talking about for, for some time. That would be lovely. Ladies and gentlemen, our guest this week has been uh, the pastor at Peace Lutheran Church here in Las Cruces, uh, a father, a husband, uh, a beer brewer, and a damn good friend. Uh, Jared Carson, thank you for being on the show. Thanks, Larry. It was great to be here. We will see you all next week on the next episode of the Square Peg Podcast, where we interview mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. Proudly produced by LasCrucesToday.com and Bravo Mike Communications.